Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are at chapter 11, the last half of that book, and the insert in your bulletin has the text there. Please have that in front of you so you can follow along as I walk us through this passage. Derek Thomas, a great Bible teacher, uh, current Bible teacher, was right to summarize the theme of Acts as God's triumph, uh, his triumph of the gospel in all the world. And in chapter 10, we have Cornelius receiving the gospel. He's kind of the model of a Gentile now receiving uh, the word of Christ. Before that, came to the Jews first, who had all that background leading up to the Messiah's coming, then to the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit came and gave faith to the Jews and faith to the Samaritans, and then faith to the Gentiles in the person of Cornelius. Now we pick up with the larger story and see the beginning of the full expansion of the gospel by the proclamation of it to the nations. And Antioch becomes kind of a model of the nations because of its, its cosmopolitan flavor. It had people from all the world, Gentiles from all over, Jews as well. It represented really the known world could be found not too many no- miles north of Israel in this place called Antioch. And there, from there, the gospel goes forward in full power, and it spreads. It's a wonderful picture of God's work uh, as he does it so, uh, so clearly in the New Testament, especially here in the book of Acts. So follow as I read uh, chapter 11, 19 through 30. And as I always remind you, I'm not reading just any old book. This is the word of the living God, and he has been so gracious that he has given it to us to study and to have preached. So follow as I read, starting at verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit who has borne us again through the work of Christ. We ask now for the illumination of your Spirit so that we might clearly and accurately understand your Holy Word and 
apply it to our lives, live according to it. Once again, we see in this passage the power of your gospel going forth. Encourage us, O Lord, convict us, embolden us this hour. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. When we study the book of Acts, which is a historical narrative, it tells the story of what God's doing in his redemption. And now in this phase of that history, it's the spread of the proclamation of the gospel. And you can know that wherever the gospel can be proclaimed and heard clearly, that God has some favor on that place. I know it's easy to get down about our times and our culture, but praise God we are still in a place where the gospel can go forth clearly. And we may have differences with other churches in many ways. We're brothers with Grace Churches preaching the gospel. Blue Valley Baptist is preaching the gospel. Hope Center is preaching the gospel. That means God's favor is still upon this place in some way that the gospel could be that clearly ex- ex- expressed and taught. Um, we should recognize that. And we see in the times of the first century that God's grace had come upon Antioch. Why? How do we know that? Because the gospel was proclaimed there. That's how we know. That's the ultimate form. To be able to tell people clearly how they could be right with God through Christ, that is God's grace upon that place to have that message proclaimed. So when we're reading this history, how do we draw applications? Um, I'm giving you one just by describing we can recognize God's grace. But there are other things we recognize as we walk through seeing what God's doing. Now, not all of them are meant to be timeless things that we follow when we see them in the book of Acts. It's the beginning of the church. It takes some time for the church to develop. Then when we get to the epistles, we have more directives about how to live and how to conduct ourselves, what the church looks like in its order and so forth. But there's still much to gather from watching the story unfold. I like to parallel it with those people in your life that you've had or experiences you've had in the past, maybe for a short period of time, but it was very pivotal. I could think of one such instance for me. It was in 1992 when I had the opportunity to work with my, he was my youth pastor in high school. He became a, a lead pastor in a church, a small urban church near Pittsburgh. He asked me during college to come for a summer as an intern and basically just walk by his side and see how pastors carry out their ministries. I was training to be a pastor, but truthfully, I would not grown up seeing a pastor work in that way. I went to a church where the model was completely different. And so now I'm in a place where there's a real hands-on approach from this pastor. So I would go with him visiting people. I'd never been in a hospital maybe twice in my whole life. We were there every Tuesday, almost the whole day, visiting people from the church or related to the church or for someone from the church said, please go visit so-and-so. There were opportunities to preach in front of people, not just in front of some students in Bible college, um, there were opportunities to hear from people what they thought about what I preached. Now, i got to be happy to say there was no email in those days. Um, but, and it did not stop a couple of the older ladies in the church, I don't know why it was them, but there was them who waited for me at the end of the service to let me know the things I need to improve. In fact, I remember going to a, a more or less Baptist Bible college. They taught the young preachers, you're going to have to lead hymn singing. So when you get up there, here are the different time signatures that you see on the page. You need to learn these are the hand motions for them. Can you imagine me doing that? But I learned how to do that in the class. We had to do it. So I get to the church. I figured that's what I ought to do too. So I start leading the song with the hand signals. And I had two ladies in the back of the church who were ready, not with pitchforks, but I mean if they could have them, it seemed like they would. And they told me no Presbyterian minister should ever stand up there looking like a clown like you did today, waving your hands all over. 
Now, never mind, they had been in a Presbyterian church that had not been preaching the gospel in 50 years, but they were happy to say that I should not be waving my hands. At any rate, no ongoing problems with my thinking of, my, uh, of those days. I have no bitterness about that at all. Just to say that that was a pivotal experience that I had, and there were like 50 things that summer that I can't tell you the specifics, but there are principles or things that I learned that helped me more than anything I learned in classroom study. Just observing things unfold. The way the Lord worked in people and through pastors and through congregants. It priceless. I mean, that was 27 years ago, and I still remember it uh, every day. When we read the book of Acts, we are peering in to God's sovereign work in spreading the gospel and growing the kingdom, the triumph of the gospel, coming to places where it was illegal, where people opposed, where there was persecution, every reason for it to fold. Instead, quite the opposite happens. It just it blows open. And so in observing it, we'll see some things, some practices by the apostles, by congregants, by others who are hearing the gospel, kings and emperors, will see their reactions and will gain some, some principles from them that are bolted in other places in Scripture. And we could walk away with a higher view of who God is, an appreciation for his work, and then some specific applications that I think will show themselves. And I'll try to point them out as we walk through the passage together. But don't lose what's happening here in the big level evangelism is going forth now to everybody, not just the Jews now. It went to the Samaritans next, and now it's going to all the nations. In evangelism itself, the proclamation of the gospel, it's a show or it's a manifestation of God's transforming grace in that place. And we should give praise to God when it is able to go forth with such clarity. We see it here in the passage. First of all, notice in the opening verse of our text, verse 19, that the gospel is now spread to all people. We knew that from Cornelius. Now it's going to Antioch. Cornelius was kind of the model person who is a Gentile. Antioch's that model city or that land that has a mixture of people from all over. Now they're receiving the gospel. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Lots, pack, lots is packed here in these, nine, these two verses. First of all, you remember back to the early part of Acts when Stephen was stoned and then persecution came largely by the hand of Saul, the zealous Pharisee who was trying to have Christians arrested and killed. Of course, we saw what happened to Saul. We haven't seen him for a while. He's going to come back. This is 10 years later. But all those people, those Jewish converts from Jerusalem that had to scatter when the persecutions happened, they went north. They went to Syrophoenicia, which is just north. They went to Cyprus, which is the island just west of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. Some of them went to Antioch, which is just north of Israel. Antioch, an important city, which we'll consider in a moment. They went there and preached to those who were already somewhat in the know, the Jews, There was a large Jewish population in Antioch. That was the first level of evangelism. That was the most natural level. But what the passage tells us here is there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So evangelism goes to not just the Jews now, but to the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists, the word Hellenist could sometimes mean they're Greek ethnically. But in this case, it more likely means they were Greek in their culture and worldview. 
Antioch. Let's think of Antioch. Here is an ancient city founded in the time of Alexander. Alexander the Great gives his generals different places to rule, and he gave one of his generals Antioch. Almost immediately, Antioch becomes a major trade city in that part of the world. It's kind of a bridge from where Israel was coming up from Africa to Israel to around to Greece, and it's right there on the way. It's inland several miles from the Mediterranean Sea, but there's a river that goes out to the Mediterranean Sea. So you have the best of everything, uh, travel, cor- travel corridor, and then there's a port that would be able to come right up into the river and get to Antioch. So it had all the religions represented, had all the ethnicities represented. There was a synagogue there, so there were Jews. The Arabs lived there because it's where Syria is. Um, you have the Greek culture. So the Hellenists, really that's a way of describing the multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, culture of the place. And so these people were not just coming to preach to the Jews, but they're preaching also to the Hellenists. That means they're making it public. It's not just off in a synagogue or in houses. This is out in the open. That's what this means to say. Verse 20. And notice the names of these great evangelists given to us clearly so we could celebrate them. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. This is important. They're not apostles. It's not Peter. It's not Paul. We don't even know who they are. And they evangelize probably the most strategic city in the first century. This is the city that Paul's missionary journeys left from. This is the first school of Paul. And we don't even know the names of the evangelists. That's important. there's There's one of those lessons I'm talking about. It doesn't matter who it is. People are not important in the sense uh, we shouldn't lift them up or their names up. God's grace is manifested when his gospel goes forward, and it really doesn't matter who's saying it. I think this is on purpose. Their names are left out. Do you think Luke, for all his detail, would not know who they are? I think he would. But the passage says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, not just the Jews now, preaching the Lord Jesus. We see the spread of the gospel, which is God's work, go to all the nations, and it's modeled for us in what happens there at Antioch. A beautiful picture of this spread. What are they preaching exactly? Verse 20, coming, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The, the message that is spreading is the Lord Jesus, and that's just shorthand for the gospel. Who is the Lord Jesus? He's the one who comes to pay for our sins. Sinners, we have a Savior who's taken our place. He is Jesus. And Jesus took our sins to the cross, bore the Father's wrath on our behalf, and then was raised again, proving that God accepted the sacrifice. Trust in him. That's preaching the Lord Jesus. That's evangelism. That's the gospel. And so the message they bring, not just to the Jews, but to everyone, is the Lord Jesus. Salvation found in Christ, and they are preaching this. You know, for all the heroic efforts of the apostles, the book of Acts clearly reminds us time and time again that it is God who is the actual hero, the one who's moving the gospel forward, the one who's expanding his kingdom. For the amazing stories that we have already read about these first Christians, Stephen, Philip, Peter, Paul, in the others. But Luke is careful to depict God as the one spreading the gospel, not even naming these evangelists who are so critical in what comes next in the history of the church. Let's notice something about this gospel that's gone forward. 
the gospel being preached um, shows that God has placed his favor in a place. Um, that's the spread of the gospel shows this. We know when the church is growing and people are coming to Christ that God has given grace. It's not something people do. We don't come up with programs or plans or methodologies or ingenious ways to make it grow. Um, God makes it grow. Now, don't confuse this with numeric growth because it's true. You can grow churches and they can look like they're bustling, but they could be quite dead or they could have no real impact. Uh, but what we're seeing here, we get a peek into the hearts and we know this is what's really happening because the text tells us. As people actually come to Christ, that is a clear sign of God's favor, the spread of the gospel itself. And here's a key phrase. If you look at verse 21, we already have been introduced to these nameless evangelists. Why are they effective? Why is the message that they preach being received? I mean, the faithful zeal of these evangelists is to be commended, but verse 21 tells us why. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. That's one of those textual flags that wave, that make you think, where have I heard this phrase before and why is it important? The hand of the Lord was with them. Well, one of many places I would remind you of comes in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Many of you know it. I know at Heritage, the third graders have been studying because I've been hearing the story in detail for a few weeks. The story of Joseph. There is a key phrase here that will help us appreciate what it means when we interpret Luke in Acts. In Genesis 39, you remember after Joseph was sold by his brothers and he was going to be put in the house of Potiphar as a servant. The passage says, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord being with someone is a phrase that carries with it credit for whatever fruit occurs. He could have just looked at Joseph and said, man, he's a great administrator. He was someone who's able to talk in a way that gained favor and all that. And he was that from what we can tell. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Even when he got thrown into prison, unjustly accused, he gets thrown into prison and listen to the same phrase come up. This helps us. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It's not Joseph who's the hero. It's God who's doing this thing, working this thing. How do we know? The Lord was with him. Later in the same chapter, Genesis 39, and the phrase occurs about six times in the life of Joseph. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. There's a very vivid picture with the use of that kind of phrase. Now we come to the book of Acts, verse 21. Speaking of the unnamed evangelists, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Lots of fruit happened in Antioch. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. And we know the hand of the Lord was with them. The gospel was proclaimed, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, be careful when you read 21. Don't read too much into it. It's not one of the epistles where Paul is really dissecting for us conversion and what happens and the order of salvation as we like to dig into, and we should. This is simply describing the gospel was preached, people assented to it and said, we believe, we agree with that, and they turned to the Lord. It's just a description of what was going on in Antioch. The gospel's preached, they trusted in Christ, and they turned to him. 
Um, if you want to get technical, you're looking at conversion there, and they're turning away from whatever it is they believe before unto the Lord. It's just Luke describing what's happening, I think, as a firsthand witness. We'll get to that in a moment. So the spread of the gospel is because of God's hand being upon them. The effectiveness of the gospel, people coming to believe on Christ, is because the Lord's hand was upon them who were speaking it and teaching it. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now what happens? This is great news, and this is new news because this is a huge strategic city. Back in Jerusalem, where the majority of the Christians still were, word gets back. There's constant traversing between the two cities. And verse 22 we read, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. What are they going to do? This is great news that the gospel has come to Antioch. Let's send somebody. And they sent Barnabas, Barnabas, to Antioch. Not Peter, not one of the apostles that have already been noted, but Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Maybe it was cultural, personality. Why did they, in their wisdom, by God's leading, no doubt, send Barnabas? Well, let's remember who Barnabas is. That will help us. Early in the book of Acts, chapter 4, we are introduced to Joseph. That's what his real name is. His nickname is Barnabas. It says in Acts 4.36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Bar, son, nabas, is encouragement or cheerfulness or of cheering. And so, remember Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon's son of Jonah? His nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement because he's someone that everybody was lifted by when he was, when he was in their presence. It was his gifting to be able to lift people up to Christ and think on God and trust in God. That's what Barnabas did. That's who he was. And we notice early on in the book of Acts, he was a Levite, meaning he was a religious Jew. He was a native of Cyprus, meaning he was, a, he was living on the island off the coast north and west of Israel. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Early on, when the persecution was heaviest, he gave of himself his material stuff so the apostles had means for the disciples who were growing. So this is the son of encouragement, Barnabas. So when 10 years later, there's this movement of God in Antioch, they think to themselves in Jerusalem, who best to send? Barnabas. They need encouragement. They're gonna, a lot's going to come upon new believers. And that's a huge city. Send Barnabas. He's from Cyprus. He'll know how to connect in that regard. And he's able and equipped spiritually to do it. So they send him to Antioch. Verse 23 When he came and saw the grace of God, see that? How does he see the grace of God? People have come to Christ. The grace of God must be here. People don't become believers without the grace of God. When he saw the grace of God, people who had come to Jesus, he was glad. It's a simple little phrase, but don't forget. This is a Jewish man, a Levite. He's Barnabas. But remember, it was difficult for Peter to make that transference. Now the gospel is open to the Gentiles. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. He was glad. He was not jealous by what was happening in Antioch. He was not threatened by what was happening in Antioch. He was glad to see the grace of God come to that place. The spread of the gospel came to Antioch because of God's favor. The church in Jerusalem, stronger spiritually still at this point, sends Barnabas to see, and he was pleased with what he saw. 
I want you to notice something that Barnabas does. If Barnabas is such a key figure, and he is in so many ways, certainly in the early church, the son of encouragement, what does he do when he comes? Now, he comes from Jerusalem. He could have easily come up there with authority. He was coming with some level of authority. The apostle sent him. He could have come and said, you know what? You know how we do it in Jerusalem? Not, you're not doing things quite right. Or he could have done whatever you might do. Maybe that's why Peter didn't go right away. We don't know. But Barnabas goes. He's glad with what he sees. And then what does he do? Notice, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted. That's what an encourager does. He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Here is absolutely a takeaway or an application from the book of Acts that's timeless. It's not limited to this time frame. This is a word of exhortation. The son of encouragement speaks, and he's noted as such several times. Let's pause. What does he do in his ministry? When he gets there, what he does is encourage them to stay stay faithful to the Lord, meaning you've been saved by Christ. You believe in him. Jesus has been preached to you. Stay faith-filled to the Lord. Believe on him. Continue to believe on him. Stuff's going to come at you. Your old way of thinking will come back to confront you. Stay, stay faithful to the Lord and stay steadfast in your purpose. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Why do you think this twofold exhortation? Remember Christ, remember the gospel, be faithful to the Lord in this way, and do so with steadfast purpose. Why, why would he say that? Because it's easy to get distracted, it's easy to get pushed off course. So be ready as you're a believer. Don't lose sight of Christ and don't lose sight of his mission. Don't lose sight of Jesus and the salvation he's brought you. And don't lose sight or get distracted by the things that could come upon you that can be good things, but keep focused on the mission he's given, which is to profess Christ with what we say and what we do. You're a Christian. You're different now. Remember that purpose that God's called you to. You still do other things. Not telling them to go live in a monastery, but he's saying be focused because distractions will happen. It happens to Christians of every era. We get misdirected very easily. We start strong on the gospel. We're steadfast in proclaiming that message and living that message out, and then something comes up and we get focused on that. It may not be a bad thing, but we get focused on that. And the exhortation that Barnabas makes when he comes there is, you know what? Keep trusting in Christ and stay focused. That's a great message. That's a great message for a pastor to give to a church. That's a great message for a missionary to give to someone in the mission field. That's a great message for a parent to give to their baptized child who's always known Christ, professes Christ, but can get distracted and forget what that means, can forget how magnificent it is that they've been spared of so many things. They didn't have to live like Paul did first. And that's a grace, but they could get distracted thinking it's not a big thing. And so what a great word from a parent exhorting their child. Rather than the corrections we could give, son, daughter, keep trusting in Christ. And stay focused on him. Tons of things are going to come at you. But these are two things that the son of encouragement himself said to the church in Antioch in his timeless, in its application. Verse 24 is an interesting, top, uh, interesting verse because of the way it's worded. Luke the historian now writing has been very careful to write like a historian writes. Not a lot of personal commentary, but when you read verse 24, I don't know if you were struck by it, but um, I have, since I studied it more closely this week, it did kind of keep standing out and been studying Luke for Lee Summit sermons for some time. It just stood out as different in this reason. Verse 24, 
commentary on Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Bible scholars say that a good possibility here is that Luke was a citizen of Antioch, and he became a believer there and met Barnabas there for the first time. And he's just saying, by the way, this is a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit. I saw it. And many people came to Christ. I think there's good evidence that this is the case, that Luke came to faith in this time period. And perhaps this is why, still by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, he makes this almost editorial comment. And a great many people were added to the Lord. A great indicator again of who is doing the work. Added to the Lord. Finally, I want you to see how as the gospel goes forward, it will make radical change upon those who receive it. There's much more in Scripture about this radical change, this transforming grace, but we already get a glimpse of it in the church at Antioch in these last few verses of the book of Acts chapter 11. Going into chapter 12, things will turn in a different direction. So we kind of leave this personal, this personal focus on Antioch in a bit. We'll be reacquainted with Antioch on the whole, but what is said here is so very interesting. Here's Barnabas, sees what's happening, is encouraging them, and he does an assessment. We can, we can imply, we can see this implied. The assessment is, this is a city of a half a million people. It's in a strategic place. And I, Barnabas, don't have what it takes to give the kind of training that's necessary. I need help. Another timeless thing for our church leaders. We don't need to do it all ourselves. Um, in fact, the best and strongest churches always have a plurality of teachers that are there working faithfully according to the scriptures to deliver that message and see people discipled. And Barnabas is not so proud, as we'd imagine, that he would think that he can do this thing that God has called in Antioch. So he thinks to himself, in proximity, and who could be able to have the capacity to bring the teaching necessary to this important hub of Christianity? And of course, Saul comes to mind. Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. The humility of Barnabas here, I think, shouldn't be, should be overlooked. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. What's Saul been doing? I mean, it's been 10 years. How do we know? In Galatians, he says something about his first trip to Jerusalem, which is many years before. Um, and then he's taking a second trip here shortly after this episode begins. So we know it's been at least 10 years. Some people say 12. Depends what math you use to figure it out. It's possibly 12. It's been a long time. Think of Saul. What has he been doing? Here's what I think he's been doing. Losing everything. That's what's happened to Saul since he turned to Christ. He's losing everything. So for 10 years, he's just been getting beat down because of his Christianity. And not beat down in the sense that you're going to stop him. He didn't stop. Every time he got up, he'd get beat up again, no doubt. And he kept getting up. Remember later in the epistles where he talks about all these episodes of the persecutions that came upon him? Many of them happened in this, this 10-year period. He ends up back in Tarsus, his hometown, maybe the only place he could really survive. Christ told him that he would be his, his mouthpiece. What happened? 10 years go by. I hear people, like, after two years get impatient with God over, what are you going to do with me, Lord? What are you going to do with me? Ten years, Saul is waiting. What is he doing? I think he's losing it all. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, listen to what he says, talking about his own story, talking about all that he had as a rich Pharisee, essentially. 
He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted it for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, we all know that passage and we think of it as very inspirational. But now listen to the last phrase in connection to the 10 years that we don't know what happened with Saul. He says, for his sake, Christ, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He's talking in the present sense, not just some general way. I've lost everything. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He has been in the school of Christ for 10 years, losing everything. So when the knock on the door came, or the tug on the tent door came, and Barnabas is standing there, Saul is ready. And boy, was he ready. And Barnabas takes him back to Antioch. Now, there's lots of things I hope in heaven we're able to see replayed. I would like to know the discussion with Barnabas and Saul from Tarsus to Antioch. Because the pent-up Saul becoming Paul, Barnabas the encourager, knows his limitations. It's fine for Paul to to shine. Going back to Antioch to begin missionary journeys that are really the reason you're sitting here today in God's providence. It's not just some distant thing that happened in the first century. It's the beginning of the gospel we we love and, and cherish starts here. Back, back to verse 26 of our text. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Look at this, this, another phrase that we just pass over too quickly. Can you imagine this? Here's Barnabas and here's Saul. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And I guarantee you, it wasn't for an hour and 30 minutes on Sunday. If we could get there because of snow. You know what I'm saying? They were there. The word of God was more important than anything else. And for a year, Saul and Barnabas teaching. And notice it's Barnabas and Saul. It doesn't say just Paul here. They met with the church and taught a great many people. I think laden here is a principle that comes out in the New Testament. God gives the church a multiplicity of teachers. It's not just one person. I remember uh, being uh, going to different churches over the course of my life in training to, to go into ministry. And I remember going to a place where I heard a person who was one of the best orators I had ever heard, and his knowledge of the Scripture was incredible. Everything about it was amazing um, to hear this man speak, the kind of giftedness he had. But I also noticed that he always spoke. Um, he spoke in the morning, he spoke in the evening. In Sunday school, if he wasn't speaking, um, there were videos of him speaking or curriculum he wrote. I don't think that's biblical. I think that God gifts the church with multiple teachers. Yes, it's not that there shouldn't be senior pastors and assistant pastors and so forth, but you should have a bunch of different teaching voices that you have opportunity to hear in your life as a Christian in the church because you're different people with different personalities. And too much of me, I mean, I get sick of myself when I hear myself talk very long. Um, you need changes of faces and voices because that encourages us in the common message that's the same, that we're all held accountable to. And we see this early in the church where a multiplicity of elders are put in churches to oversee it. And wherever there's just one, that's usually where trouble happens or it doesn't end well. 
And right here, Barnabas, who was not afraid to let Paul outshine him eventually, is there teaching with him side by side for a whole year, building a relationship that would last their whole life, that is Barnabas and Paul. Verse 26. This is an an incredible development that happens, and I want you to notice, they did not label themselves this. People watching them over this course of a year, studying, looked at them, and in Antioch, verse 26, the last phrase, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's the first time they're called Christians. Do you know that the New Testament only lists believers as Christians three times? Right here, later when Paul's talking to Agrippa in chapter 26, and 1 Peter mentions it once. This is a term that was from the outside to describe us. It's not a bad term. In fact, why, do, why are we called this? Well, what are some of the other names that Christians call themselves or, or took on? Uh, other names, disciples. They call themselves disciples. We even see that here. Um, saints, holy ones, um, brothers or brethren, believers, um, those being saved, people of the way, witnesses. But now they're called Christians for the first time. You know, think of it this way. The Herodians were called Herodians. Why? Because they were loyal and faithful to Herod. Christians are called Christians. Why? Because they should be loyal and faithful to Christ. And if someone in Antioch saw that, oh, they're a Christian. See, this is the transforming work of God's grace in the life of a true believer. Um, Paul is a picture of that for sure. The people coming to faith in Christ for sure. And now the fact that the outside sees us and identifies us in this primary way, they're Christians because they're loyal and faithful to Christ. Now we know that we can't be Christians apart from God's grace to us, but we also can't help but to express that we're Christians. And it becomes our primary identity. I've mentioned this to you before and I encourage you again. All sorts of labels that we might take for ourselves important things God's called us to as parents, as workers, uh, as neighbors, whatever we might identify ourselves with. But the word for you, if you're born again, if you trust in Christ, your primary identity is Christian, and you're not going to be able to hide that. Um, The world will come to know you as that. Now, hopefully, Christian, a follower who's faithful in Christ, models Christ in his love and what he shows. He speaks truth and he does so lovingly. He's willing to sacrifice himself. He looks out for others. He doesn't ever, ever compromise truth because he tells the truth. He says, Jesus is who you, I am who you must believe in, Christ says. So Christians likewise will have that kind of flavor to them in their life, but it is our new identity and it's our primary one. And this is the transformation that happens for someone who comes to Christ. It's not like you picked up a new hobby that you're spending a lot of time with. You know, I'm a pool player now. Come on, what level is that on your list of identities? Well, you spend a lot of hours doing it, or whatever it may be. Or I'm a gamer, or I'm a hunter, or I'm a dancer, or I'm a this or that. These things that are secondary in our life, or even our professions, you know, what we do for a living. All important, but nothing's more important than who you are in Christ. And when the people at Antioch saw Barnabas And Paul, and what they were doing, what they were learning, how they were acting, they called them Christians for the first time. What were they doing? The last part of the passage gives us some insight that really captures this transformation in their life. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember the time frame? There's still um, people who are receiving, by God's work, um, revelation, 
that he can share on the office of prophet and apostle don't close out until the last apostle dies and the scripture is complete. I mean, even that's nebulous. It's difficult to pinpoint how that looks exactly. We just have the scriptures, um, so we have this advantage over a lot of those who lived in the first century. But in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, it says down, even though they're going north because of the elevation change. Verse 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius was between 51 and 54 AD. And we know several micro-famines happened at that time when there were droughts, especially in Egypt where a lot of the wheat came from, um, or sometimes there were floods. And there were occasions where this would occur. And here's the problem. The, the Jewish Christians were the lowest on the totem pole to receive any kind of welfare. Any distribution from the government went to Jerusalem last, and the Christians lastly. And so Agabus comes up from Jerusalem saying, the Lord has revealed that there's going to be a great famine. There's going to be great need in Jerusalem. So how does the gospel change? How do we know that someone's been changed by the gospel? When we hear that kind of need in the body of Christ, even though we don't know who they are, we immediately respond. Think about this from the person in Antioch's perspective. They have been huge beneficiaries of the spirituality that Jerusalem first had. Missionaries coming ultimately from Jerusalem. Now they have opportunity in Christ because they'll have more abundance, they'll have more material things to bless Judea or Jerusalem with material blessing. How do we know the gospel has impacted them? Because they're generous. God's been so generous to us, we'll be generous to anyone who has need. We'll look out for those, especially in the body of Christ, who will be suffering. Even if we don't know them by face, we're united in Christ. And so what do we read? And one of them, named Agabus, stood and foretold the Spirit there'd be a great famine over the world. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, it'll be different across people in the church, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. That's evidence of gospel transformation selfless generosity. That's exactly what God showed us in sending Jesus. Now in a much lesser way, material but temporal things, we can be generous to others who have need. As Agabus made this clear, the people responded and they were able to collect, make a collection to send to Jerusalem to take care of the needs when stuff would go, when things would become difficult. It's a show of church unity, it's a show of compassion, it's a show of mercy, it's gospel fruit that you see. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And look at how they do it, and they did so. Sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they make the collection, Barnabas and Saul head south to Jerusalem with this offering to encourage the brethren who are there in Jerusalem. Lots in this story. It's packed. There's so many ways, takeaways, so many applications. Observing God's hand on the early church, it's a great source of encouragement for me when I read through this. I hope it is for you. Um, here we've recognized several things that are helpful. God uses no names to bring the gospel. This is good news for us. Evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, shows that God's grace is still upon a place. Um, we are to encourage people to keep believing and stay focused. God gives the church multiple teachers, leaders, and we are Christians because Jesus is our Savior and he becomes our primary identity. And of course, the proof of this we just read, that transformational grace of God in our lives makes us to be gracious with others and willing to sacrifice 
for those who are in need. This is a wonderful story that I hope encourages us. And we, we so many, 2,000 years ago, and this story is right here, right now, immediately applicable. I hope it compels us in the ways that God will call us to act. Let's pray. Lord, we can tend to get down about the state of our world and culture, but this episode in Acts takes place in a city that's really not much different from where we live. And like our times, the gospel is freely preached there. For all the problems, the gospel still goes forth. So we see your grace still manifested. We pray for this window of gospel proclamation to remain open. And we pray that you would do the same in other places in the world where the the window is currently shut. Father, we have learned much from what our spiritual forefathers went through and what you did through them. Encourage us today with uh, the encouragement of Barnabas to keep believing in Christ and to stay focused on your gospel mission to the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together respond by turning in our hymnal to 347. 347 verses 1 through 4 will stand as the elders and ushers come to prepare the table.